Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. So today I'm talking to Dr. Anne Bouchot, who is the author of A Parent's Guide to Bird Nesting, which is possibly the best book I have ever read about conscious divorcing, which makes a lot of sense for us in the post-traumatic parenting community. So many of us are not traumatized by our childhoods, but by recent events in our lives like a divorce. And I must say, Dr. Bouchot, the first thing that was so fascinating to me was just how child-centered your book was. I think people talk a lot when they're, you know, divorcing about we're going to do everything for the children. The children are front and center and they say that, but then the children are not front and center. One of the reasons why I stopped doing family therapy with high conflict divorce cases was because it was so painful for me to watch the children not be front and center. And as a child psychologist, it was just too difficult to witness that, particularly when the children become, you know, a weapon in a war. I just couldn't be a party or a witness to that anymore. So I just stopped treating those children because I couldn't do it. So, and the one thing I was thinking about when I read your book was Mr. Rogers would approve. (laughs) Like so much attention paid to the needs of the children and how the children will feel. And so child development centered that I just was blown away by that. So first, can you tell us a little bit about what is bird nesting and how does it work? Sure. I really appreciate all your comments and I appreciate your having me visit with you today to talk about the book and bird nesting. Bird nesting is, in short, it's usually a temporary or transitional time when the children stay in the family home and the parents rotate in and out um, when they're in they're on duty as the parents. When they're out, they're off duty. There are a lot of different ways they can set up the living arrangements. But in essence, the, the purpose of it is to give the parents a break from each other and from the conflict and some time maybe to work out what they're going to do next. And at the same time, to keep the children's lives as minimally disrupted as possible. So their schedules stay the same. And the other benefit is they get used to having one parent at a time while the parents are getting used to this new role of being a single parent. Wow. I love the way you use like a lot of metaphors to describe it to the children, like the metaphor of the birds flying in and out of the nest, take care of their children. It just made it so clear to the children that their needs are coming first, right? Because I think we don't think about this, but when a divorce happens, there's the loss of the relationship and the family we thought we had, but then, okay, when I'm at dad's house, will I miss soccer practice? When I'm at mom's house, I'll miss my best friend. Which bus am I getting on? Like all the stressors that are added around all of that, I think are so huge for a kid that this is like, okay, first we're going to adjust to the loss of what we thought of as our forever family. Now we're going to be a different form of our family. And now, if eventually it works out that there's two separate homes, we've adjusted already. Right, right. And what's really interesting to me when I talk about nesting with parents is sometimes parents will say, well, I don't want to go back and forth. 
But in essence, they're asking their children to go back and forth. So I actually think nesting helps parents gain some empathy for what their kids' experience is. So if, if their child forgets their soccer uniform at the other house, the parents are more likely to be patient with that and help them out rather than being angry because they're not organized. So I, that's another advantage, I think, to nesting. And usually when parents think about it that way, it's compelling to them because I've never heard parents say that they don't want their kids to be happy or that they don't want their kids to be stable and thrive. Right. And it's like sort of saying, look, you're the grown up. So you're the one who's going to bear the burden of it because you're the bigger person. So it's your job, right? Kind of the way we say to children sometimes, like if you're getting into a fight with a toddler, well, you're the nine-year-old. So yes, it's not fear that the four-year-old is acting this way, but you're bigger than her. So you can be more understanding, right? right? You're, we're saying this to grownups and sometimes grownups are just grown-up children and they don't see it that way till they try it and they try to remember to keep their, you know, work papers with them. And then it's like, oh my gosh, I forgot something. It really is very eye-opening. A lot to ask a child to do, to like, you know, keep track of their soccer uniform and, you know, all their various paraphernalia. And like, if there's art class next Wednesday, I need to bring my art stuff to dad's house on Monday because I'm going to have to have it for Wednesday. It's a huge frontal lobe burden that adds a tremendous amount of stress I yep. think to the divorce. The divorce is a and, whole loss in and of itself. And and the kids didn't ask for this. It's the parents who made the decision to separate. And sometimes it's one parent's decision, but for but the kids never ask for the parents to be split up. They never ask to go back and forth between two homes. I do think that um, talking to kids and parents about maintaining the sense of family under two roofs is helpful that it isn't a broken family, it isn't a damaged family, that we're still one family under two roofs. I do think that helps. But I think it's important for parents to realize that they're the ones that are making all of these decisions, whether to separate or divorce or how they're going to parent their children. And the the children are the recipients of that. So they need to understand that their parents' decisions will have a huge impact on their children's lives. I do think you're totally removing the lip service from this idea that like we're going to be child-centered in our divorce. This is as child-centered as you get. The children are front and center. Their needs are first. And there's no escaping that. There's no way of sort of like saying that to make yourself feel better, but then going and doing whatever you wanted to do. It's very clear the children come first in this arrangement. And I think that for people who are honest with themselves, right, who do want the divorce to be as healthy as possible for the children, it's a really good way of opening their eyes and really focusing them on like, but what is best for the children? Right, right. And it's surprising to me how little is known about bird nesting because it's really been around for, well, when my ex-husband and I bird nested, that was 27 years ago. Um, And our therapist recommended it, but she didn't really know anything about it other than parents take turns being in the home. And so learning from all of our mistakes, that was one reason I became so, such a proponent of it, such an advocate for it. And then I found that there's nothing written out there to guide parents about how to do this successfully. So that's how I ended up writing the Parents' Guide to Bird Nesting. We were actually chatting before, and I was telling you that a friend of mine who is a very respected parenting mediator had never heard of it. And this is something she does. She mediates divorces all the time. She had heard of it like peripherally, but never really heard of a plan written out for how to do it. 
And I said, no, this is like a recipe book. Like there is like a plan for every single aspect completely thought out from like what school you're sending the kids to, to how we're handling vacation, to what we're doing about extracurriculars, to finances. I mean, every single thing that you could think of is in there. And she was blown away at that thought. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that the, the most, what we know is most damaging to children when parents separate or divorce is the conflict between them. And so having a structured nesting plan supports the, the minimizing or the elimination of conflict. That's the whole point is to keep the conflict away from the children and actually to help the parents have less conflict and to know what to do when they do have a disagreement before it escalates to being a, a, a conflict. So that's the kind of foundation is how can we protect the children from the, the conflict between the parents? I see like the way you like set out the plan in so much detail, like every single point is planned out in advance, presumably when they're in a calmer state or in this like problem solving mode, right? And they're sitting and like calmly, not like when the 13 year old came home after curfew, now we're going to discuss what the, you know, consequences should be and what curfew should be. But like now we're sitting here calmly with a mediator, figuring out our parenting plan. We're calm. We're not in that hot state. We're going to figure it out. And then we just open up the document, right? And we're just going to refer to that page. We already agreed what school. We already agreed which family has priority for which holiday. We have a plan for if something unexpected comes up, what are the ways that we handle that difference? It's just so, so, so detailed and laid out. I imagine it's also comforting for the kids to know that the document's there. It is. And, the, you know, most people who are, most parents who are separating, they don't have a whole lot of trust with each other. There's often been some kind of trauma, some betrayal, some, something bad that has eroded the trust. So the idea behind having a, a written plan, a written agreement, is that if people keep their agreements, then they can rebuild the trust between them. So the plan is, yes, they're pre-thinking many, many decisions. And as, as the kids grow, they may have to make more decisions. The plan will have to change to fit the, the children or changing circumstances. But the parents learn that keeping the agreements is going to help build trust between them and it's going to make them better co-parents. Wow. Do couples ever reconcile as a result of having this kind of conversation? Well, you know, it's a good question. I think the statistics for reconciliation, it's like 13% of people who separate actually reconcile. In the model that I work from, like like you, I don't go to court anymore. I don't work with high conflict families anymore because it just was too difficult for me to see what people were doing to their children, basically. So I'm working with a, a subset of people who maybe are more likely to reconcile if they have enough help. Um, it has happened. I can't say it happens a lot, but it has. I have had clients that have figured out what it is about their communication that they need to fix and that they actually really have some good things in their marriage, but that they've been lost because of the conflicts that they've had or because of, of a betrayal. So yes, there. It, some people do reconcile. And I do have a whole section in the book about steps to take after nesting, if people decide they do want to reconcile, it, they might use that nesting period as a time to get some therapy, some couples therapy, and to, and to work toward reconciliation as a goal. Which again is so 
child-centered because let's say we're working on reconciliation. Maybe it will happen. Maybe it won't. We're going to do couples therapy. We're going to make this decision together. The children are still in the home having this bird nesting agreement, maybe not even aware that the parents might be working towards reconciliation so as not to get their hopes up or confuse them with developmentally inappropriate information, right? So it keeps them sort of still stable and in a holding environment and their life is the same while the parents decide, maybe maybe we decide that we are very amicably divorced now that we've bird nested, but either way, the children are so protected, yeah, yeah. In in the in the parents' guide to bird nesting, I did interview a family that nested for six and a half years, and I was fascinated by that because I think most people nest for maybe a year, a year and a half. Sometimes another milestone will be the end of nesting, like when a child graduates from high school or something like that, or when the house needs to be sold. That's another time when nesting might end. But in this family. I interviewed the three adult children. They're now all adults. And the one consistent thing that they said separately was that their parents bore the burden of the divorce and that the kids' lives, could ju- they could just carry on having their lives the way they would in, in a non-divorced family. So they appreciated their, that their parents were willing to carry the entire burden I've seen this in, I do a lot of work with complicated grief and I work with a lot of, you know, families that have lost a parent. I lost a parent in childhood. So it's something that I, you know, have life experience with and I'm very passionate about. And there are those parents who will say to their children one way or another, I'm the parent, I'm going to carry this for the family. For example, a teenage daughter who feels like she should be cooking dinner every night to step into her mom's role. The dad who says, I'm the dad. I am going to figure out dinner. Yeah, I'm not a great cook. Maybe I'm going to hire someone, but it is not on your head. You're the child. I'm the parent. Or whether it's financial burdens or whatever it is, those are the ones who still might be traumatized in adulthood, but have the resilience to get better because the parent said, I'm the parent. I'm going to do this. Yes. And I think you're also talking about something that comes up quite often when parents separate, which is the kids getting used to each parent taking on a new role and taking on roles they didn't have before. So a dad having to learn to cook is a role he may not have had before. And I think we don't want kids to step up and be parentified to take over the the role of mom because mom's not there. But there are ways that the dad could say, why don't you show me how you like this thing cooked? Or maybe we can figure this out together. And that's going to help build the attachment between father and daughter. And it also helps the children just kind of learn to accept that their parents' roles will be changing, but they can trust that their parents are going to do what they need, what the, what the children need. Ultimately, the grown-ups are the grown-ups. Yeah. I think that's so important for kids. So in the post-traumatic parenting community, we have people who have been through like some truly traumatic experiences in their marriage. So help us understand what would be a hard no for bird nesting. Like what would be a total contraindication? Well, first of all, I think the the beginning question is, are both parents involved, actively involved as parents? And do they want to be? Because if a parent doesn't want to be actively involved, if a parent is so focused on their career that involves a lot of travel and they're, they're not as interested in being home with the children, then nesting is probably not the best choice for that family. Parents who cannot manage their own emotions and set their feelings aside to prioritize the kids, that's not going to work well either. 
you know, people can learn to manage their emotions. Not everybody is going to be able to learn, but I, I, I'm an optimist. So I try to work with people to help them find ways to help them manage their emotions so that they can really be there for their kids. But not everybody can. I'm clear about that. The, if parents have been having a lot of really nasty arguments or violent arguments um, that they're not able to control, that's, that's a no-no. That is not a good um, arrangement for nesting. That would be like verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, any kind of coercion, even financial coercion or threats. That's not, um, that kind of relationship isn't going to lend itself well to nesting. The conflict just has to stop. And sometimes the only way to stop it is by separating the parents and using intermediators. And sometimes that intermediary has to be a judge. So in those situations, um, nesting is not a good idea. If, there, um, if there's uncontrolled addiction or mental illness, um, that is um, also a no-no. If it's uncontrolled, meaning untreated, that it really impairs uh, the person's ability to parent, that to be responsible. The parents have to keep their children safe and healthy, and a, a parent who's an active addict or an untreated, somebody with a serious mental illness, that they're going to have a hard time being a solo parent. So nesting probably won't be the best choice for them. The, the goal is to have a safety plan for the kids. Whatever this, the plan is, it has to keep the children safe. So anything that jeopardizes their safety is going to probably question the value of nesting. In, in the book, I have a self-assessment questionnaire to help people figure out whether um, there are any red flag issues that might tell them that maybe nesting isn't the best option, or maybe these are issues to work on before they in, put in place a nesting plan. That makes a lot of sense. I remember doing uh, adult family therapy session with a young woman whose parents wanted to reconcile with her and her father was addicted to substances. And he had said to her something like 90% of the time I was a good father. And you're only focusing on the 10% of the time when I was, you know, drunk and I didn't even know what I was doing and I was so violent. And she said, yeah, but the 10% of the time is what forged my personality. The 10% of the time is what did the damage. And the 10% of the time eclipsed the 90% of the time. So I can't have a relationship with you right now until I heal from the 10% of the time. It doesn't matter what the 90% of the time was. And, and that statement from the father is such an alcoholic statement anyway. I mean, it's, it's such denial about the impact of their behavior on other people. That's, a, that's sad to hear, actually. It was very sad, but it was also very empowering because we talked about the concept of how sometimes boundaries have to be physical. Sometimes boundaries have to be emotional. And the purpose of boundaries is really to mediate closeness, not distance. It's how close am I comfortable being with you. With this father, the closeness had to be physically separated. This girl chose to move out of her family home because she didn't want to put up with not knowing which father she was going to see every evening. Yeah. And her family yeah. saw that as a betrayal, but she saw that as I needed to set that physical boundary so I could grow up in a healthy manner. And she was explaining herself to her family. And ultimately she decided to continue to maintain very strict boundaries with them because of that conversation, but she was comfortable with it. She sounds like a wise young woman. Yeah. So when you're saying, when we're talking about 
trauma and divorce. How does divorce sort of impact previous traumas? Like, do you see somebody who has a trauma history who's now undergoing a divorce? Does that make it harder, easier? Is there some special way that the two intersect? It's a great question, and I would probably phrase it just the opposite. How does previous trauma affect divorce? Because if there's been a previous trauma, particularly in childhood, of abuse, neglect, abandonment, um, those are, then a divorce is certainly going to trigger a lot of those feelings and, and memories. So yes, the traumas definitely affect divorce because you, you, in order to get through a divorce, you really have to call up any resilience that you have. And previous traumas might cause an erosion of that resilience unless people have done a lot of work to try to rebuild that. So. Could there be a positive outcome to that? Yes, I do really think that there could be that people very often learn from their traumas and learn what they need to do to protect other people and protect themselves. So that's a positive outcome. In a divorce, you may have a really clear commitment to protecting the children that you might not have if you hadn't been not protected as a child, if you had been lost in the divorce as a child. So I think that's a positive outcome. Also, people might, sometimes it takes a divorce to get people to get into some serious therapy to figure out what has happened. And, to, and I think that's a positive outcome because there's a lot of life left after a divorce. And if they can heal and recover and, and move on, that's, that's a good thing. I think to put it all to good use for the greater good is the best thing that could come out. Like, um, I mean, that, I feel like that's what I did, that in my case, because of my own early childhood experience, it led me to be very passionate about protecting children in divorce. It be, has become the center of my career. Um, I also think getting involved in organizations that help families and children is a positive. Um, my mother was actively suicidal. So one of the things I did was I got involved in suicide prevention organization. And that was helpful to me to be able to help other people. So yes, there can be positive outcomes from previous trauma. I so firmly believe that. I think that trauma becomes our superpower if we let it, because it does let us see the world in a way that other people don't see the world. You know, losing my father as a child is what sparked my interest in PTSD and in complex trauma and complex grief, because seeing what that did to me and looking for help, and really back then there wasn't a lot of expectation that kids had big emotions in schools, right? It was expected like, you know, you lost your father on Wednesday and like next Wednesday you're back in school and like open your algebra book. And maybe a teacher would say something in passing, but that would even be worse, right? Because like you open up the door to big emotions and you're like, okay, turn your book to page 256 and we're going to be, you know, diagramming sentences, right? And that type of thing for me is what sparked my interest in post-traumatic parenting, ultimately, in this idea that kids have big emotions in schools, that there's a lot of traumas that intersect with each other, it became my superpower. And I think that's yeah. Yeah. in the post-traumatic parenting community. I don't think it's a accident that I go to a lot of um, inventor events and entrepreneurship events, like I cover Toy Fear for the print media and a lot of places like that. And so often I'll meet an inventor or an entrepreneur and they'll have a trauma story. Like, that'll be their backstory. I think the two intersect. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. 
So I know you've also treated trauma in your career. So I'm curious what wisdom about trauma you've learned in treating it. Uh, wisdom, that's such a good word. Um, yes, I've treated a lot of trauma. My, my current husband is a retired police officer, and we created a program for traumatized emergency responders. Um, it's run by volunteers. It's a residential program. Everyone there volunteers their time. It's a beautiful program. I've learned a lot about trauma also working with police officers. It's a little different kind of trauma than um, the trauma of experiencing divorce as a child. I think what I know about experiencing trauma as a child is that it affects both, it affects you both physically and psychologically. It affects your immune system. You're more likely to get sick. You're more likely to have physical symptoms that are completely psychological in origin, but the physical symptoms are real. It can make you kind of consumed with emotions, such strong emotions, such as rage or shame or grief or guilt. And people who've been traumatized very often just feel powerless in the world. They feel helpless in the world. And they, they feel like they can't even take care of themselves. They, they feel like they have no control over their lives. So it's sort of this chronic anxiety and, and fear and feeling unsafe and sometimes a loss of faith. The world just isn't a safe place anymore. So there's a loss of faith. And, and in, I think in extreme cases, people will isolate themselves um, because the world just feels such, such like a dangerous place. Um, be hy hypervigilant. You know, you always have to sit with your back against the wall mm -hmm. um, because you're afraid somebody's going to come up behind you. Um, so those are some sort of psychological and physical, I think, effects of trauma. So, but you can help yourself. With that. There are ways to, to heal from that. In divorce, I think the, the most important thing is to focus on your children. Right. And how can you make this better for your children so they don't have to experience what you experience? And if you need help with that, you know, reach out for help. Reach out to family and friends or, or professionals for support and help. It's very true. I always say in post-traumatic parenting that in parenting, we are parented. And in a lot of ways, that inner child that didn't get this parenting, when you provide that experience for them, I am going to make space for your big emotions the way my big emotions didn't have space. That little you feels suddenly validated, right? And suddenly yeah. healed. Yeah. Parenting is healing for the parents. Yeah. If they do yeah. it right. Yes, yes. I also think in, when you're going through a divorce, even with a history of trauma, it's important to focus on the future. I think trauma has a way of dragging us back to the past. We kind of relive it and things trigger reliving those, those experiences or call up those memories. And I think it's, if they're children, I think it's really important to focus on the future for them, that they don't have to take care of you. I think kids who have to take care of their parents, it's not a healthy thing for them. It's not right. healthy for them. The other thing is that for people who've been through divorce and have had a history of trauma, they may just feel like failures. Like, like I'm a loser, I'm a failure, nothing I do works out. And I think it's really important when I'm working with people who feel that way, that the marriage may have failed, but you're not a failure. And I think that people need to hear that over and over again. I noticed that in the book, that you, that you say that many times and you emphasize that. I think that is a very common cognitive distortion that people have about 
this type of thing. But really, it's just counterfactual thinking, right? Our brain is always going to do that. It's trying to undo the divorce or the experience of feeling like a failure by saying, oh, if I had only this, or if I had thought differently, or if I had done that, in the same way that you would if somebody died, or if there was a car accident, our brains do that naturally. But really, that's just our emotions trying to protect us. That's right. Yep. Yep. I think recovering from the trauma of a divorce, which I've said it now a few times with the history of trauma just makes the divorce trauma so much worse. You have to take care of yourself. You have to do things for yourself. You have to plant a garden or do yoga or develop new interests. I mean, if they're nesting or separating and they have off-duty time when they're not taking care of their children, that's a really great time to learn a new skill, to take up meditation or to do something creative. I think that also helps work through the trauma. We have a maxim in post-traumatic parenting that self-care is childcare. It's not that self-care gives us the skill to then, you know, go and do childcare. While you're engaging in self-care, you are caring for your kids. Like if you're sitting and having coffee with your best friend, you're actively caring for your children right now because you're making a parent for them, right? That's good. That's good. That being kind and gentle with yourself and then being able to go home and be kind and gentle with your children. Yeah, that's really important. People recover from divorce. It takes a year or maybe two years, but people do recover. And I think reminding yourself that things will get better, life will get better. Um, Once the divorce is over and you feel stable in your new life, things will get better. Sometimes looking into the future, people catastrophize. All they, they, you know, I'm going to be a bag lady or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to have anything because I'm going to have to give it all to my spouse or whatever. I think it's important to focus on the future and just imagine if I could see myself in the future right now, what would I, what will I be doing? What will I be feeling? What will I be thinking? And try to develop kind of a positive image to look forward toward. I think this is a lot having to do with Dan Gilbert's research, right? That we're just terrible at predicting what the future will be like. And actually, future me is very different from current me because she'll be the product of all the things that I've done in the past, in the next few weeks, right? So I can't really predict entirely like, oh, this is going to be terrible. I'm going to forever be the person whose marriage failed and whatever. And maybe in 15 years, you'll be in a much better marriage with a great relationship with your kids and healthy children. And maybe you won't, maybe you'll be somewhere else, but you won't for sure be in that, I don't know, catastrophic situation that you thought you would be in, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the future, it reminded me of something I think is really important to say to parents when they're thinking about bird nesting or nesting. And that is, if you could imagine your children 20 years from now or 15 years from now, sitting in a bar or sitting in a cafe with their friends talking about their childhood and talking about their parents' divorce. What do you want your child to say? What do you want that child's story to be? And that, that you know, I've never heard a parent say, I want my kid to grow up and think their parents had the worst divorce ever and it damaged my, you know. Right. Parents don't want their kids to grow up saying that. They want them to say things like, my parents really made sure that we were safe and healthy and protected us. Then, then what I say to parents is, okay, Today, you start building that story. If you can hold that story, that defines your decisions. That should be the guide for every decision you make from this point forward. 
of helping your child create that narrative. I found that parents who have trouble with the idea of calming themselves down can generally come together and agree around something like that. Because you're really clarifying their values. I call that exercise castle in the cloud, meaning like we're going to build the castle in the cloud. Now that we've built it and we've fantasized about how wonderful it's going to be, we just have to make the infrastructure to get there, right? We build the road to the castle because that's exactly what you're doing. Like the castle in the cloud is she's 25 and she's talking to her friends about her parents' divorce and her childhood and it sounds positive and she knows her parents but her front and center and what's the infrastructure to get to that moment at age 25. I love that metaphor. I think that's a wonderful metaphor, Robin. I I love it just because it it works for so many things to clarify our values, right? right? Because if we're headed there, because then we can always look at any action and say, well, are we building the infrastructure or tearing it down? Whatever that infrastructure is, right? You know, and I have this with a lot of my traumatized patients, right? So at 25 or at 35, she's going to be a healthy functioning person pursuing her life and pursuing her values. So is this action that we're doing now getting her there or getting her away from there? And when we ask that question, it becomes very clear to people. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So I'm just curious in general, what's the best psychologist story you have? You know, so many of us, there's just that one incident that sticks with us as psychologists. Yeah. Well, in terms of shifting my career in in the most dramatic shift, it was a a 12-year-old girl that I worked with who I'll just call Carol. And Carol's parents were separated, and it was a miserable divorce. And the mom was basically attempting to brainwash her children against the father to the point where Carol developed severe anorexia and refused to see her father. And I'm in California, and so they, the court ordered therapy for the child. And so Child Protective Services would bring her to my office, and the mom would follow that car. and make a scene in the waiting room. And it was horrible, horrible. And finally, this, and the child was hospitalized several times because of her anorexia. And she finally went to court and told the judge that if he forced her to see her father, she would make sure she died from her anorexia. She, that's how strongly she felt. And this was really because of the mom. Father was a good guy. He really was. So it was true parental alienation. True parental alienation. So the judge said, okay, he actually said, you don't have to see your father. Well, at that point, there's a good ending to that story, which I'll come to. But at that point, that's when I realized I was going home with a stomachache every time I saw this girl. I felt so horrible for her and that I really, I I was powerless to really help her. So I decided I wasn't going to take any high conflict divorces anymore. And I stopped. And my life has been a whole lot better since. But right about that time is when I discovered collaborative law. And there was a collaborative uh, law group in my community that was all attorneys, and they wanted to bring in therapists. And I was the first therapist that came in. And we only work with people who agree not to go to court, which is so good for me and my heart and what I want to do that I was thrilled. So Uh, Now, I only work with people who agree not to go to court. If they're in a divorce process, they have to either be mediating or doing collaborative law, but I won't work with people who are litigating. So the good ending to Carol's story is about eight or 10 years later, the father got in touch with me 
And he sent me a photo of him with both his kids and they're standing with their arms around each other. And in his email, he said that his kids understood what had happened and they made the choice later in high school to reconnect with him. And they had no relationship at that point with their mom. That's not the ideal outcome from my perspective, but I'm glad that the kids were able to reconnect with their father. Maybe over time, they'll figure out a way to have some kind of connection with their mom. Well, it's hopeful even just to hear that Carol survived, right? You know, yeah. even that is the fact that such a small kid was so resilient, ultimately fought for what she wanted with the judge and then rethought it suggests a lot of resilience, which suggests really good therapy. But I can understand, I'm hearing also your trauma, like, right, you were going home with a stomach ache and your way of regaining power, right? Because that was a traumatic experience. And your way of regaining power was, wait, maybe there's a better way to do this that won't be so traumatic. Yeah. And that was almost 20 years ago. And that case is still so vivid in my mind because it was pivotal for me. And I was so angry at the judge at the time that he caved into her. But I actually think maybe that was the right thing to do, that continuing to force her to do something she didn't want to do was just not going to be healthy for her. Well, the way, there's no way back from dead, right? Like we can always reconcile if we're alive, but you know, dead is dead and it's final. That's right. That's we say to kids all the time. But, you know, and it sounds like this kid was determined enough or in enough pain. I mean, because anorexia takes a tremendous amount of self-control. That's right. And she probably could have willed herself dead had she, you know, wanted to. I had no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a sad sad case, too. Yeah. I I got out of high-conflict divorces when an ex-husband started stalking me. The ex-husband of my patient started stalking me and making scary threats. And I said, "I, I can't put my children and my family through this. I even remember getting an envelope in the mail, and it was just these very nice pictures of my children playing on the schoolyard. I thought, I don't know what these pictures are. Okay. And then a few days later, that father called me and said, did you get my pictures? And the terror I felt. Oh my gosh. That is, that's scary. That's really scary. From that, I got a black belt. Like I I enrolled in a martial arts academy and I've been there ever since. And I now have a black belt. And, you know, not that I'm under any illusion that that would necessarily protect me with that level of pathology, but that was my way of regaining power because that was such a terrifying experience. So important. So important. Yeah. And, and then I decided... Your resilience. Well, that, that's when I decided I owe it to myself, my kids, and my family to never put myself in the position to ever meet a man like this again. Yeah. Yeah. But that was, yeah, that was People not fun. People don't realize how dangerous being a psychologist can be, right. especially working in the area of family law and divorce. Right. Right. No, I, I would, if I would ever do forensic work again, it would have to be in like a doorman building, you know, miles away from where I live with a lot of protections that I just don't want to do. I'd much rather be authentic Dr. K who has her practice and works with the kids and, you know, yeah. can trust the people who come into my office, right? Because therapy is a reciprocal relationship. It needs to be able to be reciprocal, particularly yeah. working with families. So, so my next questions are about you. So I'm just curious about little Anne. Like, what were you like as a kid? Did you ever think you'd grow up to be an author who wrote a disruptive book like this? A disruptive book? <laughs> I think this is very disruptive. Like, so many parenting mediators have not thought of bird nesting in the way that you've thought of it. Yeah. Well, I didn't invent bird nesting, but I did try to develop a, a, a way to 
to structure it in a way that would make it more successful for people. As a kid, my parents had a horrible divorce. It was a very high conflict divorce. They were in and out of court for many, many years. And to this day, my dad, who's 96, called my mother the nightmare. And my mother's been dead for 20 years. (laughs) So, you know, it has has long, long lasting results. When I was a little kid, kindergarten, first, second grade, I would panic at school every time I heard a fire engine because I was sure the house was burning down. And of course, then I didn't make the connection to the fact that the house was burning down. My family was was burning up, but that certainly had an impact on me. So I was a shy kid. I was fearful. I really had no self-confidence at all. But I will say that my dream was to be an archaeologist at first. And I remember reading about digging up tombs in Egypt. And I thought, I'm going to go dig one of those up. And then later, when I was about 10, I wanted to be a brain surgeon. And we had a science project where I I wrote a book about brain surgery. And so right now, it's kind of a little bit of that, a little bit of both, actually. I still do a lot of digging (laughs) and um, digging up old stories and maybe some old bones and helping people recover. So I can see that there was a, a line from those years to what I do today. There's a really linear progression, right, of like figuring all this stuff out and then sort of drawing a map for other people who are going to figure it out. I think a lot of us become psychologists on the order of physician heal thyself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted to diagnose everybody in my family. That was my goal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember when um, in my martial arts training, um, at one point, one of my instructors put it in a very pithy way. She said, well, only amateurs fight for free. And I thought, yeah, only, only amateurs, like, you know, analyze their family for free. So I'm going to stop doing that, you know, because it's true. People do, you have that temptation sometimes. And of course, we want to understand where we came from so that we can help other people. But we're also, our psychology lens can sort of be shut off when we're in our regular lives. I think people don't realize that. Like, you know, not always are they talking to Dr. Kozlowitz, right? Sometimes they're just talking to me, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is two different things. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I say I wanted to diagnose everyone in my family, that's sort of a flippant way of saying, really, I was really wanted to understand. I was curious. I wanted to understand why my family was the way it was, how they got there, what the generations back, what the history was that made each of my parents who they who they became and the impact of that on my sister and me. Right. And I think we all want to do that as, as therapists. We just want to understand and then just create the roadmap for everybody else. So it makes it so clear. And then it's so much easier to handle because, again, it's bringing back power. Like, I understand this process. I understand the recipe for how to do divorce really badly. So I'm going to create the recipe for how to do it really well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And how to be a, a good parent. If you've had difficult parents, it can be a valuable lesson in how to protect your kids, how to be a good parent, how to do things better. Right. And it's so important because it's transformative for us, but then also for our kids, because ultimately, if we fail at parenting, that's the one failure we really can't get over in the same way that we can get over, you know, uh, you know, a business failing or, you know, anything else feeling like a failure. You know, you get fired from your job, you get fired from your job. But parenting is the one thing where the stakes really are high and we really yeah. do value. 
and we do make mistakes anyway. We all will, and our kids will be sure to let us know. Um, but but we can be more forgiving with for, with ourselves also, and we can understand what our intention is. And you know, in my situation, I don't think my parents had any um, intention of protecting us from the conflict between them. I don't. I just think they didn't understand. I think they thought. I think they thought we were fine. Um, and parents will say that to me. Oh, my kids are fine. And I think that parents often just don't understand that their kids may not be showing the signs of distress. They may be acting it out in other ways. Parents might say they're fine, but she doesn't do her homework or they're fine, but he's in his room all the time. So they're not fine. It's very hard, I think, because that's a lie that parents sometimes want to tell themselves, especially when your entire brain is you know, committed to the divorce, particularly if it's a high conflict divorce. It's, you know, a very easy lie to say. I mean, I've had parents come in with kids, not during a divorce, but let's say, you know, some other family conflict is going on or some other major situation and they say, oh, but the kids are fine. And I remember my, my most vivid example of that was a patient who had been molested by her brother and she was coming to therapy after, you know, after the whole child protective services investigation and all that. And when she was talking, she said, but I mean, she's fine. I said, your daughter intentionally burns herself with cigarettes. That's like the textbook definition of not fine. People who are fine don't burn themselves on purpose. Her daughter today is a very healthy, resilient person. She grew up. We, you know, dealt with the self-harm and all of that kind of stuff. But at the time, what could be more not fine than intentionally hurting yourself, right? I think for parents, I mean, I do have compassion for parents because going through a divorce is so hard and so painful. And if there's been a trauma or a betrayal or they haven't seen it coming and they've been blindsided, it's so parents are so overwhelmed by their own emotions that in a way it's like they have to think their kids are okay. It would just be too overwhelming to think, you know, I'm a mess and my kids are too. That would just be so difficult for them. So I think our job as psychologists is to try to help them see their kids for who they are and, and, and support them. And, you know, they need. Right. And, you know, it's like, I'm not okay right now. And my kid is not okay right now, but this is pain. We will get through it. We will heal. We will talk about it. We will do therapy. We'll do the things we need to do. And then we'll be okay. It's okay that we're not okay right now. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I can take care of myself. I don't need my child to take care of me and I can take care of my child. Right. My pain is my responsibility as a grown-up, right? I think a lot of post-traumatic parents also feel very strongly that they want to do parenting perfectly. And then they have this idea that the minute it's not perfect, then they're a complete failure. And you can't parent perfectly. And even when you try, then that's a problem because, you know, Winnicott says perfect parenting is toxic, right? Like, so there's no way to parent perfectly. We have to be good enough. And sometimes we're going to be a little less good enough. And sometimes we're going to be a little bit more good enough. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember and- working on a research project in grad school where we were looking at parent and teacher responses that were, and that we were just classifying them as like optimal, adequate, and counterproductive. And even the most stellar parents in our study were optimal only 8% of the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I remember looking at that as I was the only parent at the time in that grad school cohort. Everybody else was, you know, young, we were all young grad students, but I had kids already and thinking like, oh, okay, it's only 8% of the time. That's, that's not such a high bar. I I can, you know, adequate is adequate most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I remember when my kids were little, Irma Bombeck said something like, if my kids are alive at the end of the day, I've done a good job. Right. So, right. We set the bar, especially like over Corona, right? We set the bar at like, you know, that's about it that we can do. Because if we set the bar high, what ends up happening, I interviewed Moira McCullajack, who's a big researcher on, on parental burnout. And she said that a lot of the parents who start out as helicopters and have parenting perfectionism end up burning out and then being worse. Yeah. So we're yeah. much better off not trying to be perfect in the first place. But if we're post-traumatic, if we're somebody post, particularly let's say a child of divorce who's growing up like my kids will have this healthy you know, lifestyle and I won't, they won't have anything like what I went through, but the opposite isn't good either, right? That's true. You know, you mentioned Corona. I want to say something about Corona and nesting. That during this period when people have been forced to shelter in place, they've been forced to nest. A lot of people had been planning to separate or were on the verge of it, but hadn't actually separated yet. They've suddenly been forced to nest. And a lot of the people that I've been working with in the last five months or, or six months are people that are trying to figure out how to nest when they really don't want to. They don't want to be in the same home anymore. And, you know, obviously that wasn't going on when I wrote the book, but it is, it's been a real learning experience for me to see how can I help people nest in circumstances that are so stressful where the kids are at home, they're having to homeschool, you know, parents have often lost their jobs. You know, there's so much stress and they can still nest. So you almost have like this like perfect control group for an experiment that you never intended to set up. That's right. right. I bet it went better than people would have expected. Yeah, it did. It did. But you have to be creative. <laughs> right. But that's so hopeful for the children. If people yeah. can say, okay, we're going to make the best of this. We're going to make this work because we have to yeah. for the sake of the kids. And, the stru- and that's where the, the structures in the book, the, the agreements and all of the, the planning that they have to do, it, it really works in the situation like this because I could help these parents develop a schedule where they do get space from each other and where they set up some space that's private that they agree to respect for each other. And, you know, it, it really helps to have all of those structures that I've outlined so clearly in the Parents' Guide to Bird Nesting. It's like, let's go back to the operating principles, right? It's, it's like, okay, so we don't know what to do in this situation. Well, we'll open the book. We'll take a look. Oh, that's right. That's what we said we were going to do. Yeah. I think that takes away so much of the conflict, you know, yeah. like just 90% of it, because most conflict happens during those hot button times when we're not our best selves. Yeah. So if we have a document to look through, then we can say, okay, now I know. And not only that, but you, in that document, you have an agreement about how you will settle disagreements. Right. So that you, ha- you ha- already have an agreement that if something comes up that you don't agree on, that there's a way for you to address that um, without letting it escalate to the point of serious conflict. Wow, that's so pre-thought. That's so brilliant because you're right. If you don't have an agreement about how to create an agreement, then everything will deteriorate the first time something we couldn't possibly anticipate comes up. That's right, exactly. And you can't anticipate everything. And parents do have different parenting styles. And so things will emerge. As, as the kids grow, things will emerge. One thinks the child can have a later bedtime and the other parent doesn't agree or chores or cell phone. That's a big one. One thinks the child can have a cell phone. The other parent doesn't agree. How do, you, how do they work those things through? Before they start having knockdown, drag out arguments about it, they have 
um, they have outlined in their plan what they will do when there's a disagreement. Right. It's like, by this, this is what I mean. You know, by bedtime, I mean 8.30 p.m. You know, because I feel like a lot of times we don't define our terms and we just say, okay, so you're in charge of bedtime, but being in charge of bedtime means like sitting and reading three stories and making sure the kid falls asleep or saying, all right, go to bed. And then, you know, three hours later, the kid's still awake are two very different styles towards bedtime. Right. But there's also the issue of parents don't have to agree on all those things in order to nest successfully. First of all, I come from the place that I recognize that in every family, parents have different parenting styles. There, you never see parents that have exactly the same parenting style. And when they want to separate or divorce, one of them is going to be more sort of at this end of a continuum that says, I want to co-parent. I want to agree about everything. I want to talk about everything. I, want, I don't want to do anything without consulting with the other parent. That's sort of at the extreme end of that continuum, which parents will often say that's what they want. But then at the extreme other end is what, I, what we call parallel parenting, where really the parents are completely independent. There's a firewall between them. They can still nest. They just have to respect that there's a firewall between them and each parent is going to do things the way they want to do it. Is that bad? It's not bad if it ends the conflict between okay. parents, right? Ideally, I mean, I, in my perfect world, everybody would co-parent down at this end. The reality is it's better for kids that the parents do whatever they need to do to end the conflict. And if it means putting a firewall up and parallel parenting, that's okay because the kids are protected from the conflict and they'll sort out the differences between their parents. Provided, I think, that there's an agreement made about transitions, right? Like, if oh, yeah. it's your job to put them to bed, but it's my job to get them up the next morning, and they went to bed late, so then my job gets harder, like, that would I, I could see as being something that would have to very much be codified so that right. it's fair. Right. Yeah, the issue of transitions, both with the children and the home, is really important. And it is important to have agreements about how that will happen and how they will each update the other about what's been going on with the kids when they've been on duty, what they need, if the child was sick or has a schoolwork project that's due. There has to be some kind of communication so that the transition is smooth. In the book, I have a, a, a sort of a checklist that's called Our Children's Day, Our Children and Home, maybe, where it's basically it's a checklist that makes it easy for parents to update the other parent that comes on duty so that it can be a smoother transition. So like a handoff form that you might have in a hospital exactly. or something like that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's brilliant. Yeah. So if going back to like little Anne, if you could tell her one thing, what would you say? I guess I would say that, that I was worthy, that I was worthy of being loved, that I didn't need to be so afraid that I could speak. You know, I didn't have to be self-effacing. Uh, that would probably be. Don't, you know, not to be afraid to pursue my dreams. I don't have to be a pleaser. You don't have to be a pleaser, Anne. You can do what feels right to you. That's what I would say. It's so interesting how people-pleasing is such a common, unrecognized trauma symptom. It's true. People yeah. do not realize it. I had this conversation with um, a post-traumatic parent where we were talking about the origins of her feeling pressure to be selfless. And she said, you know, I've always felt worthless, so I needed to be selfless. But now you're telling me that I need to parent with my whole self. And it was such a brilliant line. When she said it, it like just put the dilemma in such 
clear focus because, right, her whole life she's been told be selfless because you're worthless. And, yeah, you can't parent. You, if there's no self, how do you parent? Right. Yeah, that's nice. That's a nice story. And, you know, having the self, you know, having a sense of self is something that we need to be a parent. If yep. we don't have it, we can't, we can't yep. do the kind of stuff you're asking for in the book, right? You can't create that kind of conscious parenting plan. You can't, you don't have the boundaries and the resilience necessary to put the kids forward because there's no self that values that. And how do you do self-care if there's no self? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So this is just such a contribution. And again, it's just another example of how our traumas end up becoming like our seminal questions and our seminal answers in our lives, which I think for any post-traumatic parent who's listening, who is at the very beginning of this, right, where you're just figuring out that you're a post-traumatic parent and maybe you don't have your career figured out yet, or maybe every, all the pieces aren't in place, right? To know that eventually that trauma is going to become integrated and become your mission in life in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. In a way, it took another trauma to get me really on the right track for doing what I'm doing now. And that was um, my stepmother, who I was very close to and really loved, was killed in, a, in an accident. Oh, and no. it, was, it was horrible. And I had three half-siblings and everybody suffered. It was just, it was devastating. And in my grief, I found myself talking to somebody that I really didn't know that well. It was another parent at my kid's school. And I felt so much better after I talked to her. So I called her up and I said, what did you do? How did you do that? <laughs> And that really set me on the course back to grad school. And I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be able to help people feel better when they've had trauma. So that was really a turning, that was in 1989 or something. And that really was the turning point for me. Being able to, you know, be in the present of empathic listening, right, is really the core of healing. And like when we look at, there's a million approaches, right, to healing trauma. But if you think about them, they all have that empathic listener at their core. Was she a therapist? No, she wasn't. She was just a parent. Yeah, but she was good. (laughs) She knew how to listen. She did. She really did. And I I think for me, it was that lesson. It was also the lesson of how important it was to talk. Yes. How important it was for me to have a way to express myself. So one of my favorite kids' books is um, by Corey Dorfield. It's called The Rabbit Listened. And it's about an animal that is, is harmed in some way. And all the animals come up with like these solutions, like the lion's going to roar and like punish the, the evildoer and the rabbit just listens. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know, that idea that just being listened to is so valuable. And witness. And witness. witness. Yeah, it is. Right. It's yeah. the biggest gift we can give anybody, I think, is mm-hmm. that gift of hearing them and hearing their story. Yep. Yeah. And then that's what gives us the, the ability, like what you did and in, in that transformative way of saying, like, I'm going to really write this path for other parents. If I've gone through this and I struggled with it, other people are too. So I'm going to write it down, like piece by piece by piece, so that it's there. Yeah. Yeah. It took a long time. To come to the place where I could write the book, it took a long time because I had to work with a lot of people and learn from their experiences and my own experience. My ex and I nested for 15 months uh, and we had no clue what we were doing. And I I learned a lot from that because there were a lot of bad things that happened during that period. And 
when I worked with clients, finding out what worked, what didn't work, how did they solve problems, and just putting all of that together is how the book finally came together. Wow. Just looking at the book and the a level of detail that's in it, like to me that, I mean, I feel like people who are not divorcing, who are just figuring out other things, like when families are blending or when people are figuring out like different parenting styles and they are staying together, should read it because you do lay out every large domain where something could be a disagreement and then very specific questions about like, so finances, so schooling, so summer vacation, so family weddings, right? You have it like all laid out so that people can have those questions and think them through so that at the end, even if something didn't come up, first of all, you have that way of handling disagreements that, you know, didn't come up. But aside from that, we're already so used to like, okay, so this is our process for figuring this kind of a conundrum out. Let's figure it out together. Move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I tried to put it in a way that although there's a lot of detail, it's not that complicated and that people can do it. It's in, in my mind, it's actually simple. It's, it's like following the recipe, as you said before, it's step-by-step. It's not that complicated. It's just working through one step after another to create these different plans, a budget or a parenting plan or whatever it is. Right. It's not at all an intimidating book. It's not a theory book. It's not like we're going to lay out the theory of divorce and its impact on the family. That's not what it's about. It's very, in that sense, very readable and very like, this is the plan. We're going to follow it. It's not going to take a ton of complex thought to understand what you're trying to say in it. It's not intimidating at all. It's a guidebook. It's, right. you know, when I, I love to travel. If Corona ever goes away, I'm going to travel again. But, you know, guidebooks, they take you where you want to go. And step by step, you, you have markers, you have, you know, identifying uh, milestones. And that was sort of the model in my mind of creating the book. It's a guidebook that people can use. It's user-friendly. It is. That's why I keep using that metaphor of a recipe book, right? Like if you can read, you can cook, right? You just do what it says in the recipe and out pops whatever it is you're trying to make, right? And it's the same thing here. There's a recipe. It's very clear. Follow these steps. Do these things. Have this conversation. Create this document. And there we have it. It's all thought out for you. At a time when you're too stressed out to think yourself. Yeah. And you see the results. Your kids are doing better. Your your divorce goes more smoothly if that's what, what you do. Your relationship with your exes become a more cooperative, co-parenting relationship. So, you know, it's, it's different from taking the cake out of the oven, but it's better because you see your kids are thriving. You see that things are going to be okay once you get through this period, that your family will be, will thrive. Right. And rather than having to like do the like, oh, the kids are fine. You're saying, well, the kids are going through a process with us now. They're not entirely fine, but they will be. We're doing the best we can with the tools we have. We're enhancing our tools every day. We're focusing on it. Mm-hmm. This is going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, and one of the things about nesting is that because so many people don't know about it, it's important to know how to talk to people about it and how to talk to the kids about it. And, um, and I found that that came up quite often for me because people hear that you're separating or divorcing with the best of intentions, they're going to tell you to go lawyer up or, you know, they're going to start to get you into that fight mode. And so I think as parents, to protect our kids, we also need to have the conversations with friends and relatives that love us, that the way they can support us best 
is not by giving us advice, but by maybe offering to babysit sometimes or maybe you know, doing something else that is supportive of the family and that they don't have to take sides. Right. Very true. And it's very true that people try to take sides in the way they feel protective. So they want to, you know, get involved in the fight as opposed to just be supportive. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. true. You have to know how to ask for help and what the kind of help that you're asking for is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a whole section in the book about how do you talk to people? How do you enlist their support? What do you say to your children? Who needs to know? Do the teachers need to know? Do do other people need to know? And, and who doesn't need to know? Right. Really, you should write a picture book for kids <laughs> explaining the concept so that parents could just use it as a way of explaining what's going on. Because that metaphor of the birds flying in and out of the nest is so evocative and powerful. It could so easily be a children's story. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll think about that. I like children's books. That's, you know, one yeah. of the things that we do in post-traumatic parenting is I teach parents how to use books in their parenting and how to use a story as a way of attuning to their child. And then once we're on the same wavelength discussing an issue. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you probably know the book, The Invisible String. Yes. Yeah. So when parents are getting divorced or when they're nesting, it's a wonderful book then because the off-duty parent can read it to the child and, and the child will know that they're still connected even if the parent is not in the home for a few days. Right. Another book like that is The Kissing Hand, yeah. right? Where it's also that idea that we have a transitional object, you know, whichever parents kiss is always with me. It's always yeah. there. Yeah. Another book that you might want to be familiar with is called My Quiet Ship by Haley Edelman. It's a book about a little boy, I think it is, who creates a fake spaceship in his bed whenever he hears his parents arguing. Mm-hmm. And I use that book actually as a way of opening the eyes of parents to how children experience their conflict. Mm -hmm. You know, um, whether it's a family where they're having conflict with an older teenager and the younger kid is witnessing it, not always conflict between the parents, but how painful conflict is and how much lengths this little boy has to go to to create his spaceship to feel safe until he doesn't hear the sounds of fighting anymore and then he can like land back on planet Earth and it opens up eyes of adults to how children experience conflict in their lives and how powerless they feel. It's so interesting that that was the, the image that he called up because when we were little, my sister was four and I was six. She, we would hide in the closet when my parents were fighting and she created, this four-year-old little girl created something called the magic gum factory. And it was just tearing up pieces of paper into a, a sort of a box, but each piece of paper was a ticket to go somewhere. And she would say, where do you want to go? Or I want to go to the moon, or I want to go, you know, to to Paris or whatever it was. She created that as a way of escaping. And that was our safe place, you know, my little four-year-old sister. And when my uncle came to visit once, we just took him in the closet and said, here, come in here, you'll be safe in here. And we had this, and kids in the neighborhood wanted to come to the magic gum factory. Sure, because you had such belief in it. It was so necessary for you that it became very real. Yeah. Yeah, I did something similar. A patient of mine told me about when her her brother had very severe disruptive mood disorder, behavior disorder, and he was very um, violent in the home. And her parents were really not, their eyes were not open to the impact on this little girl. And 
one of the things we did was she made this little, she, she did on her bunk bed, she made like this little ship. And like for her, it was like this cozy cave that she was in and it was on another planet and it was really safe. And um, I actually had her show it to her parents as a way of explaining to them this is, I gave her a little, like, a, I gave her a little camera to record herself and she recorded herself in there and she talked about going in there whenever her brother was raging. And it really opened the parents' eyes to the fact that their son had crossed the threshold and needed residential care. Like the amount of damage living with such a violent person in the home was doing to their little girl was too much. Because once she showed them the cave and she like explained all the layers of protection and like when he's being really loud, I put four quilts and then I imagined that we traveled even further. They were able to see like, this is causing damage. We need to do something about it. I'm glad they were able to see that. It was a very painful decision for the family to send a child away for the sake of the family as a whole. But also I, I kept saying to them for the sake of that little boy, because if he ever would injure somebody, he would have to live with that forever. So you're not just doing it for the sake of, you're not like sending one child away for the sake of the other. You're sending both one child away for the sake of each one of them. That's right. That's right. But these are the realities of life with trauma, right? That we, that we do. But it, the nice thing about trauma, I always say, is it gets better. Like if we, and it, and it really gets better, it turns into a superpower. It turns into health. That's right. Yep. It's why it's the most hopeful thing to treat in many ways. So thank you so much. I really appreciate that you did this. <laughs> thank you for having me and really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. You're doing beautiful work. Yeah. Thank you so Cheers. much. Dr. Bichot, thank you so much for appearing on the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. I know many post-traumatic parents are also in the process of divorce or contemplating divorce, and your book can really be helpful. The concept of bird nesting is as child-centered and child-friendly as divorce can possibly be, and the level of detail and planning in your book is impressive. Every time I read your book, each chapter, I kept thinking, wow, this is the only divorce Mr. Rogers would approve of. We appreciate your perspective. If you'd like to read my Psychology Today blog post review of Dr. Bichot's book, check out the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for appearing on our podcast. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.